now I get the special opportunity to introduce to everyone um, my big brother, Ben. Uh, so Ben, come on up here. Um, ben is going to be bringing us God's word this morning. He is um, part of a church plant in Madison called Eastside Church, um, and he is going to be co-planting with another pastor, um, Michael McKittrick, which if you remember from our psalm series this summer, Michael came and brought us God's word um, at the end of the summer, and so Ben and Michael will be co-planting Eastside Church, and we are super excited to be partnering in the church planting endeavor with Michael and with Ben, um, and so I am privileged uh, that he gets to come and bring the word for us all to feast on this morning. Um, and traditionally, this is a sermon that um, at the end of the year, this is a standalone sermon that typically is about God's word. Um, obviously, all of our sermons are about God's word, but this is about um, specifically, you know, specific to God's word application and things like that as well. And so um, I hope that um, everyone is, is ready to hear from God this morning, and I'm excited to myself. So let me just pray for Ben real quick before we um, get going. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my brother, Ben, and giving him the gifts and talents that you have given him, Father. And I pray that you sustain him this morning as he brings your word and feeds your people here at Woodridge Community Church. God, that you would be glorified as we are satisfied in you, Lord, as we see Jesus in the word, um, God, and, and learn what we can do to better glorify you in our lives, especially at the turn of a new year, Father, ways that we can break old habits and Build new ones, Father, by your grace alone. So I just yes. pray that you bless Ben and allow him to speak your words, Father, and allow us to hear them this morning. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Love you. Well, good morning, Woodridge. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, you have been such a conduit of God's grace for my family, and I want to start by just thanking you for that. My brother and his wife Ashley have called this church home for many years. My brother Dustin called this church home while he was an undergrad at Marquette. And my sister Annie now calls this church home. And they have feasted on fellowship that only comes from and through the gospel with and because all of you. And so thank you for your faithfulness to love on them. I enjoyed being here a few months ago leading worship and I'm excited I was excited when I was asked to come this morning to preach the word to you. I was especially excited when I learned of this tradition that you have. To the last Sunday before a new year flips over, to be reminded of the importance of God's word in your life. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the importance of the implanted word and how God is calling us to respond to it. But first, I just want to share with you a little bit about myself and about Eastside Church, the church that I am helping to plant alongside Michael in Madison. And so, uh, as Drew mentioned, my name is Ben. I'm the eldest of the siblings. Um, Drew's hair went gray and mine just fell out. Um, but as I was getting ready this morning, my uh, second-born daughter, who is always reminding me of the gray hair in my beard, uh, reminded me of it again, and, and it uh, seems that we're leveling up somehow. Although if my beard falls out, I'm done for. So uh, we, uh, we grew up in a, in a Christian home. Um, we were taught the importance of God's word at a young age. And by God's grace, I received his call to put my faith in Christ and began a journey learning to love God that brought me uh, to undergrad where I met my wife, um, Nikki. Uh, we've been married for 12 years. We have four children. Quinn is our oldest. She's seven. Uh, Nora is five, uh, full of life, and comments on my gray beard. Uh, our son Graham is three, and our daughter Avery is one and a half. And so we are busy, um, but love it. 
every second. It's so good. I think every stage of parenting will be wonderful, though I'm grateful when some of them come and go. And so uh, this morning, um, I am excited to share with you uh, just a little bit about how Eastside Church got started. And uh, my wife encouraged me to be brief on this point because this is all that I have been talking about for the last eight or nine months. And so uh, it's, I'm very excited. Um, and so Michael was here in J July uh, for your During Your Psalm series. He and I met about 10 years ago uh, in Kenosha at Crossway Community Church. Uh, we both did internships there while we were going to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, we overlapped a little bit with Luke, actually. And actually, um, my knowledge of Luke goes even further back. This is a slight tangent um, before we get into my manuscript where I'm locked in. Uh, and I've got a little freedom here. Um, actually, uh, we went to college, my wife and I did, with Amy. Luke's wife. And so I remember uh, Amy, we had mutual friends. We were both involved with Campus Crusade. And um, I remember she would leave frequently to go visit this Luke person. And uh, I think I remember even an early visual image of a very, very young, under 20 Luke coming to visit Amy uh, at some point in time. And then we met him again at Trinity and have just uh, known him kind of in and through the connection with Drew and Ashley being here. And of course, my other siblings, like I mentioned. Um, but Michael and I met at Ted's and at Crossway, and uh, both pursuing a call to pastoral ministry. Uh, mine more on the worship side, and Michael at the time, I think, more on the academic side. And God has called us both towards pastoral ministry. And so we both came to Madison in 2016. Um, I had moved there in the spring to be the worship pastor at Door Creek, uh, which is an evangelical church on the east side of Madison. And Michael came to pursue church planting with the Vine Church, another E-Free church on the south side of Madison. And it was, I think we were both overjoyed that somebody who'd known us longer than just a few weeks was there in the city. And so we began meeting together regularly, kind of rekindling our friendship and praying for one another and our various ministries. Um, Michael, even back when we were in uh, seminary, was adamant that he felt like if he was ever going to plant a church, he wanted to do it in a team. And so we were praying for two years that God would send someone to plant with Michael. And in February, Michael informed me that God had told him it was me. <laughs> uh, and so after kind of Nikki and I wrapping our heads around that, we made the hard decision to leave friendships uh, and family at Door Creek and to plant a church on the east side of Madison um, that we're now calling East Side Church. And so I want to just share with you a little bit about the climate in Madison. Madison is known, I think, throughout America, surely, throughout, for sure, in this state, as a very liberal place. It's progressive. People are questioning and doubting everything, especially if it's standardized and organized. And while you have the western side of Madison, which has the university and many large corporations, um, there's the east side as well. And the west side tends to be the spiritual mind of Madison, or the, the progressive mind of Madison, whereas the east side holds her progressive heart. And so the people on the east side are very spiritual. They're not atheistic. They believe that there is some kind of force in the universe, but they've ruled out that it's Jesus and that it has anything to do with the God of the Bible. And so we have an incredible opportunity to reach these people who have a real desire to live in authentic community and a strong, strong desire to do good that lasts but they lack the power of the gospel to actually accomplish both of those things. 
And so it's exciting that we, with our families, are going to be meeting with them. We spent the summer gathering a core group. Um, by God's grace, we've got about 40 adults. And by his grace, we manage the 34 children, nine and under, as we gather on Thursday nights to just teach the vision of what we feel like God is calling us to here on the east side as we're in this kind of prolonged incubation period waiting to launch, God willing, on Easter of this coming year. And so just want to, to ask you uh, to pray for us as I bring greetings from the people of Eastside Church. Would you pray that our core group would be continued to knit together by the gospel relationally and with a focus on mission, that we would be able to build relationships with our neighbors, and that Michael and I, as we continue to raise funds to support the church so we can focus on the work of launching and establishing Eastside Church. And so we are excited. It's neat to see churches like Woodridge, a plant not that long ago, relatively thriving and healthy, a commitment to God's word evident in your life. And so this morning, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Would you join me? God, I'm so grateful to be here with these sweet people. I'm grateful that we can, for this moment, open your word and expect that you will communicate this passage of Scripture to us, that you would help us to hear it, and that you would help us to put it into practice. God, I thank you for the way that you've orchestrated the times and the seasons and the places of our lives. You're not surprised we're gathered here this morning. And you know how you're going to use this in each one of our lives to bring yourself glory and to bring us closer to you and to one another. We love you, God, and we're eager to hear from you now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you take your Bibles, I'll ask you to stand in just a moment. But we're going to look at the implanted word from the book of James this morning. So turn to James chapter 1. We're going to focus in on 19 through 27, but first we need to know a little bit about our author and who he's writing to. And James, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a little book tucked after Hebrews, just before the three letters to John. One of the principles that we've been teaching to the people of Eastside Church over the past five months is that the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It's a small distinction, but it's really helpful, and it just means that we can't draw a straight line from what the Bible says to our lives today. But instead, we need to hear the intent of the author for his original audience before applying the message to ourselves. This will prevent us misinterpreting God's word and keep us hearing what God is saying and will keep our response in line with what God is asking us to do. So would you stand with me as I read James 1, 19 through 27. This is the word of God. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. You may be seated. James is the brother of Jesus and most likely spent a good amount of time following the events of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the only letter from him that is in the Bible and it is writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. These were Jews who had been scattered throughout the known world at the time and they are far from home, far from family, far from familiar land and far from like-minded people. Their world is not unlike the world that we are living in as Christians today. As the years go on, it becomes clearer and clearer that this world is not our home, that we, like them, are without question in need of encouragement, of comfort, and of hope. James writes all of these things, but he's not flowery in his delivery. He gets to the point. He continuously calls the Christian community to live a life of contrast with the culture around them. He's calling them out of conformity in the same way that his big brother Jesus had done when he was on earth. We know a bit about James' character that's going to help us as we read this passage and see what it says this morning. He was devout. He was known for his piety and his mercy. He was known for living like Jesus, set apart from the culture of his day for faith and for ministry. He doesn't have the warmth of John. He's not eloquent like Paul, nor does he address the leadership of the church with the authority of Peter. However, he is clear and straightforward and very Godward in his writing. And that is really good news for us this morning. James has a high view of God's word and how the believer is to relate to God, one another, and the world based on it. So we're going to see what God has written for us through James 1, 19 through 27 this morning about his word and how we are called to respond to it. And as we do this, my sincere hope is that you're going to see that God's people are called to live distinct lives of worship for him in response to his word. And to help us do that, we're going to focus on three responses out of the word this morning. Response number one, to receive the word. Response number two, to reflect the word. And response number three, to live like the word. We're going to see that God is calling us to receive the word, reflect the word, and live like the word. We're going to need to remember as we go that these responses build on one another. They're connected to one another, and in the end, we'll see that they illustrate that God's people are called to live distinctive lives of worship for him in response to his word. So let's get started. Response number one comes from verses 19 through 21. And this first response is to receive the word. James gets at this in two parts. He first highlights an ongoing situation his audience is dealing with, and then he moves to a general call to put away worldliness in order to live for God. Verse 19, you'll notice, begins with three commands. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. These three commands, one comes from Ecclesiastes and two come from Proverbs. The commands to be quick and to hear and slow to anger. And it's easy to get tripped up here if we don't remind ourselves who James is writing to and why he doesn't cite his source. You see, he's anchoring his audience in the Old Testament that they would have very, very good knowledge of. It's their scriptures. And so to set the stage for what is coming in verse 20, he's anchoring them in something that they would know. Let's work through each of these commands one by one, reading them in their original context. Be quick to hear, 
comes from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2. And it says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Slow to speak comes from Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Slow to anger comes from Proverbs 19, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. As we look through the lens of the Old Testament passages, we can see that James is writing these bits of wisdom not as general reminders, but as specific corrections. Something was going on in the way that the Christian community of the day was interacting with the world around them. And James is telling them to stop to choose godly wisdom over foolish living. Their words had gotten out of control, leading to angry outbursts, and it was damaging the community. But what were they after with these angry outbursts? Later on in chapter 4, James is going to help us to see that fights, quarrels, and anger all stem from wanting something and not getting it. So what weren't they getting? Verse 20 helps us see what they want in the negative We have to pay attention. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Did you see it? What they're after is the righteousness of God. But they're trying to get it through human anger. And James is telling them that it won't work. Anger is sin. And James already warned them that sin, when it is full grown, leads to death in chapter 1, verse 15. Another question we need to ask is why do they want the righteousness of God? What is the righteousness of God? The word righteousness here can be translated the moral correctness of God or the justice of God. And if we reorder the words in the verse to show whose righteousness it is, God's righteousness, and substitute in justice for the word righteousness, I think that we're going to see what they want and what James is driving at here. Look back with me. This is verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce God's justice. You see, they were trying to bring about God's justice for themselves by using angry words and as a response to persecution and to those who opposed God. You see, this kind of behavior is happening by Christians today, too. And in the same way that it was when James wrote his letter, we're in a really tricky time as Christians in America. And as 2018 flips over to 2019, I don't think that it's going to get easier. I think it's going to intensify. Over the past several years, there's been a shift in how people perceive Christianity and the people who claim to follow and believe in Jesus. The 2016 election saw an uncomfortable vision of evangelicalism painted by politicians and the press. And I know many people who took to social media to defend their version of Christianity. They came from both sides, swinging hard and spewing vinegar, and all was done in the name of getting justice for God and turning people's attention towards God. But they forgot, just like our original audience, that human anger does not and cannot bring about God's justice. Human words don't have any power. They can't change 
hearts. They can't change minds. They cannot stand the test of time. And when they are many, sin, not justice, abounds. You know, it's really interesting. I was recently talking to an unbelieving friend, and he was commenting on how Christians don't seem to practice Christianity the way that God tells us to in the Bible. He was saying that as he looks around, as he interacts with people on social media, as he has conversations with people, they're saying things to him. They're showing him how they're living, and it doesn't match up with the catechism that he had as a child. I think it's just really interesting. He has limited knowledge of the Bible, but it doesn't stop him from rightly seeing that all of the words flying around are not mounting up to equal anything like God's moral correctness, his justice, his righteousness that we're called to live as Christians. And so James, having corrected them in their anger, doesn't want to leave them like that. He wants to get them to, uh, to God's word and the hope of salvation. And so he picks up in verse 21 saying, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, having warned them strongly against using anger to bring about justice, James now broadens the scope. He brings a strong command to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This is a holistic call to stop living in any way like the world. It's a call in line with commands against anger, but much more broad and far-reaching. This is a call to finish turning from anger and to humility, to receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word. Humility is the opposite of anger. So the work that is done in turning from anger is necessary in order to set up the receiving of the implanted word with meekness. Do you see it? Their words were many. They were mounting in their defense of God. And so they were, in a sense, distancing themselves from the very God that they were trying to turn people's ears and hearts towards. And so James is saying, put away your anger. Put away worldliness. And with humility, receive the implanted word. But here we have to pause for a moment. I think the word implanted could trip us up. James does this all throughout the book. He takes these things that are very common and he attaches adjectives to them. (laughs) And he does them very purposefully. And we're going to see it throughout the rest of our passage this morning and how he's trying to help us. But what does it mean if something is implanted and yet we're encouraged to receive it again? But it's already there. Well, I don't think, surprisingly, I found John Piper to be helpful here. He says this, If you treat the implanted word of God like your kidneys, you are making a big mistake. Your kidneys are implanted in you by your first birth, but you do not go on receiving your kidneys. They just sit there doing their work, and you rarely think about them. You certainly didn't receive them. They are already there, firmly implanted. He continues by saying, But James says, Receive the implanted word. It is already in you. And you should receive it. It is rooted and planted in you. It brought you life. It is there sustaining that life by feeding faith in Christ. But it is not there like your kidneys. It is there like oxygen. It gives life. And in giving life, it makes you breathe. And in breathing, you receive oxygen. 
No one says, I have oxygen. Look how well it is working for me. It makes me alive. I do not need to receive more oxygen. You see, if we continue in treating in the theme of God's word as oxygen in our lungs, then James is reminding us here to take a breath. In fact, he's appealing to us to actively move everything else out of the way. All the anger and filthy wickedness the world has to offer and just breathe. But why? To borrow language from 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, because that is how you received salvation, how you are standing in salvation, and how you are continuing in salvation to this day. The implanted word which is able to save is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when James encourages the believers to receive it, he is reminding them of the gospel which God has planted deep in their hearts and will continue to plant again and again as they move away from the world and toward him in humility. If we go back to our oxygen analogy for a moment, we can imagine how, like our need to continue breathing, we must continually put away worldliness and receive the implanted word. Remember how words were leading to angry interactions? Here is where the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs really begins to ring loud with helpful truth. If it is true that when words are many, sin is not lacking and listening is impossible, then it is also true that when words are few, there is both less opportunity for sin along with the increased chance to humbly listen. Listen to what? People, surely. But James has something more. Listen to the implanted word. The relationships we have with one another pave the way for how we interact with God. If we are unable to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger with those we interact with, why do we think we'll suddenly be able to flip a switch when it comes to interacting with God? Quietness before the Lord is the first step toward being able to receive the implanted word. A proud heart that multiplies words to the point of anger cannot move toward God. And so I want to ask you, are you using your words too often? Are you speaking so frequently that you're unable to hear the implanted word? I'd encourage you to ask God to reveal to you how you need to move away from selfishness, to move away from worldliness, so that you can, with humility, receive his word and live a life of distinct worship for him in response to that word. Ask him to teach you not to hold your breath. He's designed you. He's made you, and he's put his word inside of you to give you life. So our first response was to receive the word. So we come to our second response that we're going to see out of our passage this morning, and that is a call to reflect the word. So if you look at James 22 through 25, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The second response that James calls us to do in relationship to the word is to reflect the word. 
And so again, we have two halves in this section. They're put in contrast with one another. We'll take them one at a time before putting them together to see the whole picture. So let's look at 23 through 25 again. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Similar to the first response we saw in 19 through 21, we begin with a command followed by a human action that needs correction. In light of that command, so that the word can have its intended effect. This human action is different from the first one, though. It's not a situation that needs correcting, but an overarching human condition. Here the command goes further into doing what the implanted word calls for. But before the doing can happen, we must have a pattern to follow, someone to whom we can reflect and seek to imitate. Mirrors at that time were much, much less effective than the mirrors we have today, but their purpose was essentially the same. Again, James is being very practical here. When he warns us not to be like the man who looks at his natural face and forgets how he was, he means it. This man has an opportunity to look deep into his soul and be moved by what he finds there, but he isn't able to. Instead, he looks only at the surface of his natural face before walking away. Perhaps he's checking to make sure that his beard was on point or that his robe was falling just the right way off of his shoulder. But whatever he was looking for was on the surface and of no lasting value to him, and therefore very quickly forgotten as he walks away. This is similar to the uselessness of words that James talks about in verses 19 through 21. And the same is true of our human reflection. By looking into a mirror, we aren't able to reflect anything but our natural state. That is the sin nature that we were born with. Following after that reflection would only lead us further away from living a life of distinct worship for God. Instead, we need a better image to reflect. And so, James points us to a better mirror. That mirror is outlined in 25 as the perfect law, the law of liberty. And in it, there is a direct line to blessing. If James had said only the law, our original audience, and most likely we too, would rightly be thinking about the Old Testament law. The law was the pattern for human behavior for the Jew, so in some way it would have made sense that he calls them to it. But this is where, just like with the implanted word, James gives us something to help us understand what he's really saying. Look at 25 again. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. So this law is not just the law. It's the perfect law of liberty or freedom. This brings to mind Paul's letter to the Galatians, where in chapter 5, verse 1, he reminds them, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is reminding them that the gospel needs no addition whatsoever. There's a saying that you may be familiar with that goes like this, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That's Paul's point in Galatians 5. It's James' point, and it's what we need to see this morning. The perfect law, the law of liberty here, is the written law as lived out and fulfilled by Jesus. We call this the gospel, and we can't add anything to the gospel to make it more powerful because it is completely perfect. The implanted word in verse 21 speaks the full and complete message that we belong to God and that he is at work in us to make us more like Jesus. 
And so here, James is actually taking the written law, which is not powerful on its own, and pointing it towards Jesus, the fulfillment of that law, so that we would understand that the law plus Jesus equals perfection and freedom for us. You see, Jesus came to fulfill the law and to bring us into right relationship with God. The good news for our original audience and for us today is that when we look into this mirror, it is not the blank face of broken humanity looking back at us, but the radiant glory of the implanted word of God, of Jesus himself. And just like the law was the pattern for human behavior for the Jews, our Bible is the pattern for human behavior for us today. And Jesus speaks through every word and on every page. The Bible is the mirror that we are to come back to again and again in order to see our great need for our great Savior. When we first begin looking into the mirror, we are very aware of the stark contrast between our natural image and the implanted word. Jesus, being Jesus is being reflected back in us. But over time, as we persevere, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, we begin to see more of Jesus in us and less of our natural reflection. We call this sanctification. It's the gradual process of the implanted word breathing life into us over and over again and helping us to grow degree by sometimes very small degree to be more like Jesus. But we must come back again and again to the word in order to experience the sweetness that is the implanted word in us connecting with the perfect word in our Bibles and helping us grow to become more like Christ as we seek to live distinct lives of worship for God. And here's where I don't want us to make a mistake. Whenever blessing shows up, especially in the New Testament, I think we can get tripped up. But make no mistake that the blessing that James is talking about is the process of becoming more like Christ. When he says that being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This means that as we listen for and receive the implanted word in light of the perfect law of liberty, we are blessed by the result, our sanctification. This is true for both this life and for the one to come. Because in the end, the purpose for us becoming more and more like Jesus is because one day we will be with him. Our desire to work out God's justice on our own will be gone and we will be with him. Our desire to even, and our natural reflection will be perfect and will be like Jesus in every way. Always living a life of distinct worship for God as we live at peace with everyone. And so we come to the final response. This response is the sum of the first two responses and the heart of what James has been driving at so far in our passage. Response number three is to live like the word. So we've seen God calling us to receive the implanted word. We've seen him call us to reflect the word. And now we're going to see that God is calling us to live like the word. We have a great handhold for this response coming out of the Christmas season where we celebrate that God said Jesus to become human so that he could walk this earth and experience all the things that we experience, and yet he could navigate this life to perfection. He's like us in every way, and yet unlike us. 
He was and remains fully God and fully man. And every year at Christmas, I find myself in awe again at the incarnation. Why would God choose to do that? Every other myth of religion and philosophy has humans tirelessly working to achieve some kind of ability to ascend to be with their God. Our God's not like that. The God who created and is sustaining the entire universe laid aside his power, laid aside his glory, and became a baby. It's baffling. So I ask again, why would God do that? Well, the gospel writer John answers our question as he opens his book. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And a few verses later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus, fully God from eternity past, came to bring God into a dimension that we could see and touch him. He condescended to us because we would never be able to ascend to him. So as we close out our passage this morning, James would have us to see and live like the word, like Jesus. He is the implanted word. He is the perfection of the law so that we would live like him. Let's read verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. As he begins this section, James wants to make sure that his original audience understands again the danger of their words. It's a good reminder for us, too. He wants them to remember that they had been using them in anger to try to bring about God's justice for their own selfish gain. Not only does that hinder them from being able to move away from worldliness and receive the implanted word, but it is not in line with the character of Christ. Over and over again during his earthly ministry, of which James was familiar, Jesus used his tongue to build up, not to tear down, and certainly not for selfish gain. Hear Jesus' own words from Matthew 15, 18, warning about the tongue. But what comes out from a person's mouth, what proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. James is most likely aware of his own need to control his tongue as he seeks to encourage and correct these early Christians. Whatever is on his mind, we can be sure that his desire for them and for us is that we would imitate Jesus' way of life. That God would be the focal point of all of our waking up and lying down and that we would be a light for God in a dark world where we are the minority. This warning against worthless religion is strong and rightly so. From our passage, we know that James is not, sees not giving in to anger, which is always selfish, 
as the first step toward rejecting a worldly life and being able to receive the implanted word and do what it says. Doing this sets us up to live out what he calls us to in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. After putting down selfishness, we're able to pursue the kind of distinct living that God calls us to. These two real-world examples sum up Jesus' character in succinct beauty. To do, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. While it's unclear if James actually traveled with Christ, he would be familiar with the stories. And so I can imagine that as he's writing this, he may be thinking about Jesus sitting with the woman at the well. The parable of the Good Samaritan or the time that Jesus allowed a prostitute to anoint his feet with oil in front of the religious leaders and then forgave her sins. There's no doubt that Jesus left an impression on James of what it looks like to live out the word. And he is passing on what he believes to be the greatest reflection of Christ. We're to live not angry, but humble. Not cruel, but merciful. Not wicked, but holy. The beauty of these characteristics is that they are good indication of how we're living according to the word and also something for us to aim for as we seek to daily respond to the word. The co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, coined the famous phrase, you cannot think your way into right actions, but you can act your way into right thinking. For James, both faith and action go hand in hand. And that is why I think that he would see Jesus' example for us, his character, as both the outcome and the starting point for us. But what he would not say is that we can simply get to the outcome on our own. Rather, we should use these characteristics of Jesus as a spiritual gut check. If we are full of selfishness, and we lack humility to receive the implanted word, we are in danger of drifting into worldly living apart from God. James mentions widows and orphans, but similar to Paul's list of the spiritual gifts throughout the New Testament, this list is not exhaustive. What it looks like manifested in our lives is that we would have a posture of mercy. So let me ask you, who in your life needs mercy? What needs to change in order for you to visit them in their affliction? And what are you afraid of that you would need to give up in order to do so? If you are unwilling to show mercy to those in your community who have need, then you are a hearer only and therefore deceiving yourself. This is hard. Throughout my entire sermon, I've been trying to work in a quote from what is now my new favorite book, um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosario Butterfield, um, except I couldn't, so I decided to just throw the whole book in right now. Um, it's, if, you're gonna, if, you're like, if you're like me and you, you plan out what you're going to read in 2019, push this book to the top of your list. Here's the reason. As we interact with the people in our lives, I think that we can compartmentalize what James is talking about here. Widows and orphans in their affliction. Oh, we should start a program for that. That'd be really good. We need, it's there. We need to help them. It's good. But I think if we step back 
And we see this as a posture of mercy for the people who are in our community who we already know. Remember who James is writing to. James is writing to a small community of Jews living abroad. They're not at home. So most likely they're huddled up in one neighborhood. And so he's telling them, the most vulnerable in your midst, that is who you need to visit in your affliction, to live like Jesus. And so let me ask you, who lives on your street? Don't pretend to know all of their afflictions. But let God lead you toward living a life of mercy with your neighbors. I bring up the gospel comes with a house key because Rosario Butterfield, over the course of that book, opens up her life to us and shows us what it looks like to live what she calls radically ordinary biblical hospitality. And I would challenge you to look that direction. God is about the business of saving people. I was at a conference recently, and I went to a breakout session called Church on the Block, and the presenter was sharing with us all the amazing things that God has done over the 15 years that he and his wife have lived on a block in the hardest and most crime-ridden neighborhood of Chicago. I wish I could tell you all the stories. I can't. It would take too long. But at one point in time, he said, I want to do something. He said, I'm going to list off scenarios about how people become Christians. And I want you to raise your hand when your scenario comes up. And so he started off, angry street corner preacher, oddly enough, one person. Somebody uh, on an airplane or in a coffee shop walking up to you and saying, do you want to know how to become a Christian? One more person, raise their hand. He listed off a couple of other scenarios. One person, a couple people here. And then he said, this is a room of about 40 people. And he said, how many of you became a Christian because a close friend or relative shared the gospel with you? And it was everybody. And, and I think it's a powerful illustration. We know that God plants his word in people's hearts. But we also know that then he puts us next to one another so that we can help fan that implanted word into flame by huddling around the scriptures, by praying for one another, by sitting around our tables in fellowship and asking, how are you doing? And really wanting to know the answer. And so what does it look like for you in your life to cultivate a posture of mercy like Jesus, to live like the word? There's one final word from our passage this morning, and then we're going to close. We've been exhorted to put away anger. We've been exhorted to have a posture of mercy. And now James urges us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. It seems like a cliffhanger, doesn't it? But if we step back and we look at this in light of our passage this morning, we'll see that James' point is pointing us to the crowning jewel of Jesus' character. Jesus was set apart for God. In the same way, we are supposed to live lives full of faith that are marked by a progressive sanctification that brings us out of looking like the world and into looking like Christ. He isn't telling us we're to be perfect. Actually, it's the opposite. Everything he's written about so far acknowledges there's a battle going on and that there is an ongoing relationship between our actions and our faith and the implanted word of God. The beauty of this is that for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we have him. 
we have the implanted word and we can look to the perfect law of liberty as our help. And as we humbly receive him daily and eagerly look into the word daily, we will become more like Jesus. It's the good news. It's the promise of the gospel. But there's a hard message in this as well. If wicked worldliness marks your life, then it is possible that you have not received the implanted word. That you are outside of the community of faith altogether. But wherever you are at, relative to these characteristics of Christ-likeness, there is good news, really the best news. God is the one who does the implanting. So you don't have to be strong enough you have to be weak enough. It's counterintuitive. And if you're sitting here this morning and God has opened your heart to faith, receive the implanted word. Turn to him in belief. And if you are a believer this morning and you know, just know that he is the one who's given you his Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to point you to Christ so that you can truly live for him and become like him. I know these themes can be heavy and it's cold out. So it's easier to hear hard sermons when it's warm out for some reason. I don't know why. So what I want us to do right now is just spend a minute just in silence before the Lord. Ask God to help you sort out what he is calling you to move on. Think through these responses. The call to receive the implanted word. The call to reflect the implanted word, and the call to live like the word. So just quiet your hearts, close your eyes, come before your God now, and I'll close us in just a moment. God, I thank you. I thank you for calling us together this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to not give up seeking to live holy and upright lives before you, before one another, and we would not stop seeking to live and follow after the example of Jesus. That we would be hearers and doers of the implanted word. That we would turn again and again to you, asking you to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. That we would put away selfishness, that we would receive Christ, and that as we learn to reflect him, we would live a life of distinct worship for you. God, I pray that an unbelieving world would find our weakness, shortcoming, and desperate need for you so believable. God, would you plant the word deep in hearts. Thank you that you are the God who saves, sustains, and is always with us. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.